Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeed.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, March 7th, 2021, and this is show number 826. In this week's Chit Chat Across the Pond, Bart Bouchotz joins us, but not for what you might think. This is an episode of what he calls Programming Adjacent. It's not about programming, it's actually about cooking and not wasting food. But Bart, being a programmer, approaches the problem like a programmer. I guarantee you that no one else on this planet approaches cooking and food inventory in the same way as Bart. It was great fun to learn how he does it and to contrast it to how in my house, two engineers have come up with a slightly different system. And uh, it was it was great fun. We had a really good time. You can find Chit Chat Across the Pond in your podcatcher of choice. Or of course, there's a link in the show notes to this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond Light. Well, because we didn't have enough fun together this week, I got to be a guest on Let's Talk Apple, hosted by none other than Bart Bouchotts, with fellow guest Chuck Joyner from Mac Voices. I promise we behaved ourselves. I might have gotten one dig in right there at the very end. Anyway, the intro material on Let's Talk Apple was the best illustration of why Bart's format of a monthly news podcast has real value. He described the bouncing ball of rumors surrounding Apple's supposed Apple car, which if you were listening on a daily or a weekly show, it'd make your head spin. But with the monthly show, you could really kind of understand and see the pattern and see how silly it really is. Anyway, the entire show was great fun, like I said, and I hope you'll give it a listen. There is, of course, a link in the show notes, but better yet, look for Let's Talk Apple in your podcatcher of choice and subscribe. I've done a lot of reviews of screenshotting apps, and I recently explained the hidden treasure that is the built-in screen capture utility. To be perfectly honest, 95% of the time, that's what I use on my Mac. I take a lot of casual screenshots, I open them up in preview, mark them up real quick, and then I send them off to explain things to people. I figured out a little trick with annotating in preview that makes things so much easier. In order to motivate you to learn the trick, let's review the hard way first. In the preview toolbar, you'll see zoom in, zoom out, uh, share, a grayed out pencil, rotate the image, and finally, a tool that's a circle with a little pen inside. This icon, if you click it, will show the markup toolbar. With the markup toolbar showing, there's a lot more fun to be had. I'm going to jump right to the main part of the tip, but then we'll circle back and play around with some of the other tools and describe the problems that they solve. Let's talk about the actual tiny tip here. Let's say you want to draw a rectangle around something to draw, your, to draw your recipient's attention. One of the tools is entitled Shapes, and the icon is a rectangle on top of a circle. Tapping on this reveals options for a regular line, an arrowed line, square rounded rectangles, ovals, thought bubble stars, polygons, a mask, and a loop. But in our example, we just want to draw a box about something. The process then would be, select the Shapes icon to get the dropdown, Move down to the rectangle icon and select it uh, to drop the box into what will be a seemingly random location on your screenshot, never where you want it to be. Then you have to drag the box so the top left corner is actually where you want it and then drag the bottom right hand corner to resize it to outline your desired target. That's two menu picks, then two additional drags to get the box in the right spot, and that inefficiency drives me bananas. Now, here's the exciting trick. The third icon in the toolbar is the sketch button. Select it. And using your trackpad or mouse, draw a close approximation of a rectangle right where you want it. It will look awful, of course, but when you let go, it will automatically turn into a perfect rectangle. 
It's delightful how well this actually works. Now, of course, you may need to adjust it just a little smidge by dragging one corner, but usually the first corner was right where you wanted it. I find this to be much more efficient. Right after preview changes your childish attempt into a true rectangle, a drop-down menu comes out of the sketch icon. This menu includes two options, one of which is to change the perfect rectangle back into the sloppy one. This technique of drawing with your trackpad or mouse works with all of the normal shape tools. If you get close to a circle, it'll draw a real circle. You can use it to draw a triangle too, but I could never get it to draw an isosceles triangle, you know, where each side is the exact same length, but you know, if you don't mind any old triangle, it'll still work. Surprisingly, you could draw perfect lines with arrowheads. It takes some short practice to get the hang of the arrowheads, but once you get it working, you're going to want to draw arrows on everything. If you draw a straight-ish line with or without an arrowhead, you'll get a straight line. But if you draw your line even slightly curved, you'll get a curved line with a control handle in the middle, allowing you to model that, uh, modify that curvature. I tend to forget that it has this feature, and I'm always delighted when it happens accidentally. Even if you meant a straight line and it creates a curved line, you can always straighten it out with that control handle. All right. Since we're here and that tiny tip is out of the way, which was awesome, right? How cool was that? Anyway, let's learn a little bit more about some of the tricky things you can do with preview. Let's say you have an image, but it's in, on the wrong background color, or you don't want the background at all. In preview, it's very easy to select the entire background and simply remove it. The tool concept is called Instant Alpha, and it's the second icon from the left in the markup toolbar. Once you've selected Instant Alpha, just drag across the color area you'd like to remove to select it. Note that as you drag, moving up and down changes the tolerance. So if it's selecting more than you want, slowly slide up to select less and slide down to select more. If you have a solid background that's in high contrast with the area you want to keep, you don't need to use these finer adjustments. But if there's, say, a gradient to the background of the image or the color is a little too close to the image you want to keep, you might have to fiddle with it a bit. As always, your mileage may vary with how well this works. Now, I purposely neglected to tell you that you can also draw perfect five-pointed stars by hand. I skipped over the stars because I wanted to tell you more about what you can do with them in preview. When you draw a star, it will have eight blue resizing dots. Imagine a box enclosing your star. You'll have resizing dots on the four corners and one on each side of the box. These eight blue dots only do one thing. They resize the star while keeping the proportion of the star. If you want to distort the star, hold the shift key down while dragging one of these dots. That's not terribly exciting. These, tri these uh, stars come with two green dots. These are the fun ones. The inner green dot can change the star points from being long, skinny lines to having kind of a fatter inner middle to the star. It's kind of clumsy to explain, but when you drag the green dot, I'm sure you'll understand what I was trying to explain. The outer green dot is even more fun. It travels on a circular path. As you drag it clockwise on the circle, it increases the number of star points. And when you drag it counterclockwise, the number of star points decreases. I don't think you can draw polygons by hand, at least I can't, and in any case, it's actually easier to just drop one in with the shapes menu. By default, you'll get a hexagon, but like the star, you'll get an inner green dot, which will change the number of sides to the polygon as you rotate around the circle. I bet you've always wanted to know how to draw a perfect dodecagon in preview, right? I mean, who hasn't? I mentioned that the shapes menu includes two features called mask and loop. 
The purpose of the mask is to select a rectangular region to which you'd like to draw your viewer's attention. This mask accomplishes that by darkening the rest of the image outside of the rectangle that you draw. Well, it's pretty obvious how it works when you drop one in and you drag it to the size and location you desire on your image, but there is one tricky bit. If you deselect the mask by selecting a different tool, it's not entirely obvious how to edit that mask to change its size and location, location, or even delete it, because when you click on the highlighted region, the mask does not get selected. Instead, you have to click anywhere outside of the mask region in order to select the mask. This makes it very difficult to work with an image after you place the mask, because you can't select other geometry placed on the same image. If the other geometry is outside of the mask area, when you try to select that geometry, it will instead select the mask. I'd suggest adding the mask as the last thing you do on an image if you need one. Now, I've never found a problem that the loop solved, but it is a slick little feature. The loop is a circular area that is, zo that is zoomed in. It has a blue dot for resizing that circle and a green dot that when rotated around the circle increases or decreases the magnification inside the circle. Like I said, it looks pretty nifty, but I have not yet had a need to point to something that fits inside the circle. I'm sure it's probably a lack of imagination on my part. Now, I don't do a lot of work with PDFs other than opening the occasional user manual or saving my own documents as PDFs, so I've never found the need for the high-end PDF applications like PDF Pen from Smile. I'm sure it's terrific, but you know what? Not being a lawyer, I just don't have the problems that it solves. I do occasionally need to sign documents, though. With Preview, you can store your signature right in the application ready to be dropped into the appropriate field on the document. In the toolbar of Preview, select the Signature icon and choose Create Signature. Now, the default option is to create your signature using your trackpad so it looks like a three-year-old signed the document. If you're seeking a, I don't know, slightly more professional look, sign your name with a real pen on a physical piece of paper. Now choose the second option in Create Signature that says Camera. Simply hold your handwritten signature up to the camera, being careful to align it on the blue horizontal line so that it's straight. Preview will recognize it as a signature and save it to your list of signatures. Now, whenever you have a PDF that requires your signature, you can simply open it in Preview, drop in your signature, and move and resize your signature like any other object to fit on the dotted line. Part of me feels a little bit queasy about storing my signature in preview because it does mean anyone without or with access to my computer and login could sign things on my behalf. Then again, anyone with a hard copy of my signature could probably steal it and do the same thing, so maybe it's not that much worse than a physical signature. There's a feature I always forget about pre in preview, and that's adjust color. This tool is represented by three lines with little circles on them representing adjustment sliders. Now, I've been mostly talking about screenshots in this article because that's my most common use case. But let's say you've got a photo in Finder and you don't like the exposure or color on the photo. I actually used it for this very thing just this week. Adjust color gives you a surprising amount of control over the image. It's got a levels adjustment at the top where you can move the black and white level sliders and the midtones. If you'd like some help, there's an auto levels adjustment. If that's not enough control, you have sliders for exposure, contrast, highlight, shadow, saturation, and temperature. There's even a tint slider that also has an eyedropper that allows you to do an auto white balance. You even get a slider to change your image into a sepia tone if you want to. And after you've messed up your image entirely and you realize you don't remember where the defaults were for the sliders, there's a very useful reset all button. Not that I ever had to use that. There's a tool in the toolbar that I actually never noticed before. It's called Image Dimensions. 
In this window, you can scale and or resample your image with full control. You can scale by size using pixels, points, or percentage, and you can customize your own size or choose from some standard pixel options. Speaking of size, I, I skipped over the first icon in the toolbar, which is the selection tools. Of the options in this tool, I only ever use the rectangular selection tool because I'm really usually interested in cropping an image. With this tool, I do a click drag to get my area, realize I missed my desired size or location, and then I use the blue dots on the corners to adjust it. A quick Command K and the image is cropped. I like that the rectangular marquee tool tells you the perfect the pixel dimensions when it's selected so I can get a precise dimension and the shift key lets me get a perfect square. There's also an option for an oval circular selection area and a lasso tool to select if you're really an anarchist, I guess. The one tool I couldn't figure out on my own is the smart lasso tool. I have to confess that I had to go find an Apple support article to explain it to me. It seemed like its job was likely to be able to select an object by its edges without having to precisely select those edges yourself. I was right in my assumption, but I couldn't figure out how to do it. After reading the article, I found out that when you click and drag with the Smart Lasso, where you drag, there will be a fat red line. In order for Smart Lasso to select the object correctly, the fat red line needs to be right on the edges of the object you're trying to select. That's how you're telling it where those edges are. But you're not, you don't have to be precise because it's this fat red line. Like all of these tools of this sort, including Instant Alpha, like I said, your success will vary widely depending on how much contrast the object you're trying to select has versus its background. All the rest of the tools are pretty self-explanatory. You can drop in text, you can change the font, you can change line thicknesses and line types, and you can change the color of the border and fill of the geometries you insert. I also like that you can change these attributes before dropping in geometry and text, or you can change the attributes of existing content. You know, I enjoy teaching about the built-in tools in macOS because of how much I learned that they can actually do. I usually get complacent using a tool for only the things I already understand it can do, but when I have to teach it, I start poking every button to figure out what it does. I hope you learned a little bit in this tiny tip that turned into a full tutorial. This week, I've been hard at work on an advanced tutorial for Screencast Online on the tool Screenium. I decided to do the advanced version right on the heels of the basics tutorial because I was already on a roll with the app. I had the mind map about 80% done, I had all my tools open, and the screen's at the right resolution. The hardest thing about screencasting for me is starting. There's like so much static friction with that. So if I waited the five weeks till it was due, I'd have all that friction waiting for me. But if I did it right now, it would be easy sailing. I was right. I had a blast working on this video. But that mean, meant I didn't write anything for the podcast until Friday. I keep a list of things I think might be interesting to write about, so I pulled out the one that inspired me most and I got to work. Sometimes writing is an arduous process where the words don't flow and the story doesn't congeal easily. But man, this time I was inspired. I was clever. I spun a good yarn to wrap the technology in. And I even came up with some great pictures ready to put into the blog post. I was closing in on the last two thoughts after having written, and I'm not exaggerating, I actually checked 2,690 words on this topic when I realized something awful. I've written this blog post before. And I didn't write it years ago. I wrote it two and a half months ago. My wonderful blog post was about Fitness Plus. I got to tell you, I looked at the two blog posts and it's not word for word, but it's pretty darn close. A whole lot of the uh, little anecdotes I tell are identical. 
So that's it then. There's only one conclusion I can come to. It's been fun, but I've written all of the blog posts. Hello, Alison and those silly castaways. Alistair here from New Zealand once again with a review of a geeky tool that will let you flex your taming the terminal muscles. On an episode of the Upgrade podcast, Jason Snell talked about an open source utility called BitBar. This utility puts customizable information in the macOS menu bar by means of downloaded or user-created scripts. Jason was using it to display information from his weather station and, as a San Francisco area resident, he was also fetching his local air quality so he knew if local wildfires were a breathing hazard in his area at any given time. Being the owner of a weather station myself, I made a note to check out BitBar, but I had not done so before Jason mentioned that BitBar seemed to be falling into disrepair and he had discovered a spiritual successor, called SwiftBar, which remains in active development. Around this time, I had a problem come along that I decided SwiftBar could solve. I use Apple's complete set of Bluetooth Mac input devices, Magic Trackpad 2, Magic Keyboard, and Magic Mouse 2. I am fairly sure that macOS used to warn me when the charge level of a device got to 10% and I usually had no problem plugging in for a charge of the trackpad or keyboard, but the design of the mouse means it cannot be used while charging. The simple solution was to plug it in when I left the computer. With 10% remaining, this gave me a decent amount of time to remember to do this, but somewhere along the line these warnings started appearing much later usually when the device reached 2%. Suddenly my leeway was gone. The problem to be solved was how to know when a device was nearing empty, ideally not just in a single notification at some arbitrary battery level. Swiftbar to the rescue. All I needed to do was write a script that would display the battery levels of each device so I would always be able to see the level and choose an appropriate time to charge. Before I get into detail on how I did that, let me describe SwiftBar a bit more. You can find SwiftBar at swiftbar.app, which is a simple landing page. Click on the icon to be taken to the GitHub page where you can download a zip file containing the application. Running the application is straightforward enough and then you can learn more on how to use it at the GitHub site. Click on the Code tab which will default to displaying the readme file. One thing you will read about is the built-in plugin repository, and there are many useful ones in there, but my goal was not something covered. It was time to write a script of my own. I quickly found a macOS command which would tell me Bluetooth battery values, IO reg. I ran the command in terminal and was surprised by an enormous wall of text. Some research later, I figured out how to find the data I was after, but the actual battery values were still buried in a ton of text which I didn't need. I wanted just a simple number for each. I will refrain from discussing the details of the Unix sed command, not just because it would take an entire podcast series to cover, but also because I have a tenuous grasp on it so far. At the level I understand it, it will take text input and, by means of regular expressions, modify that text. At the most basic level, I needed to replace everything I didn't want 
with nothing or with any fixed text I need. I will also skip detail on the paste command which I have even less knowledge of but I used it to deal with unwanted line feeds as the information for each device is on multiple lines. If you're a listener to or reader of Taming the Terminal you will know about regular expressions and the grep command as well as pipes. I managed to put together a piped sequence of IO reg, sed, paste and grep commands which output a single letter, the first letter of the device name, followed by the battery percentage number for each connected device with the word magic in its name. Once I got the basic script working, it would output a string like T25K75M50, meaning the trackpad was at 25%, the keyboard at 75%, and the mouse at 50%. I then added extra output per the bitbar slash swiftbar plugin specification. This included prepending a symbol to the entire string, I chose a mouse cursor in motion, and some color specifications for the symbol and text. The symbol comes from Apple's built-in SF symbols, so only works on Catalina or later. You can use emoji instead, but I find these don't look right in the menu bar. Finally, with the output as I wanted, it was time to add it as a plugin. When you first run SwiftBar, it asks where to look for the scripts. I created a SwiftBar directory in my home directory. Placing the script in this directory makes the output appear in the menu bar. Easy! But there's one more tweak needed. The name of the script file needs to include a refresh interval. So instead of bluetooth.sh, I called the file bluetooth.15m.sh, which makes SwiftBar rerun the script every 15 minutes to update the menu bar display. And that's it. I now have a constant readout of the battery values so they become part of my situational awareness. And when I walk away from my computer, I can glance up and decide if anything needs plugging in. Once I had this working, I set about my original idea of getting my weather station values displayed. My weather station does not allow direct access, but it does update the values to weather.com and they have an API I can use to read the current values. Calling the API is achieved by using the curl command to fetch a JSON result. Because I only wanted two numbers, temperature and humidity, I demurred from properly parsing the JSON with a separate utility and instead employed sed once again to extract what I needed. I added a thermometer symbol at the start, appended a degree symbol and a percent sign on the relevant numbers and finally set some colours so they would stand out from the Bluetooth numbers. I recently added a third plugin of my own creation. And this one is both the simplest and, I think, geekiest of the lot. I've used Backblaze for a few years now and I love it for its simplicity. But it has one downside. Inside the system library directory, it keeps track of its backup status in a file called backblaze.bzpkg. Later I will refer to this file as the BZ package file. If you search the internet for this file, you will find a lot of discussion on how to tame it. It can grow very, very large. I have been aware of this file for some time, as on multiple occasions where I was cleaning up my disk, I would visualize the disk with an app such as Daisy Disk or Grand Perspective, and this file would appear as a significant chunk of my utilized space. 
Backblaze's response is that this file can grow large based on the number of files being backed up, but it seems that sometimes gets out of control. In that case, their recommendation is to turn off your backup and restart it. Not ideal. The problem to be solved reared its head on my new M1 MacBook Pro. Once I got it basically set up as my primary computer taking over from my 2018 Mac Mini, I installed Backblaze and let it back up. Sometime later, I was moving a whole bunch of data around between computers and external drives, and there came a point where the free space on my MacBook Pro's internal drive was lower than I thought it should be. I fired up Grand Perspective, and along with various stuff I had forgotten about, I noticed an enormous red rectangle that I quickly identified as the BZ package file. It had grown to over 17 gigabytes. I figured it had been busy trying to back up all the stuff that I had been moving via the disk over several days, and was likely keeping track of much more than was ever there at one time. I refound the solution to the problem and reluctantly followed their procedure which included uninstalling Backblaze and dealing with the license. Once I'd got the backup going again, I first created a new directory in my home directory called No Backup and excluded this from the Backblaze backup. I will now place any major amount of temporary data in there to avoid growing the BZ package file. But I wanted to keep an eye on this thing, Swiftbar to the rescue again. I figured it would be easy to get the file size by means of the ls command, but there is a catch. The bz package file is not a file as hinted by the name. It is a macOS package file, which behaves in the GUI like a single file, but is in fact a directory. If you looked at the backblaze fault description I linked to, you will have seen no mention of backblaze.bzpkg, but instead a file called bzfileids.dat. This file lives within the directory and is the cause of the whole thing growing in size. Some research later, I came across the du command, which displays disk usage statistics. By default, it lists the contents of the specified directory, but with a couple of flags, I was able to get a single line with a human readable size for the whole thing. Human readable simply meaning it is expressed in kilobytes or megabytes or gigabytes as appropriate, rather than just a huge number of bytes. A little use of said again got the output down to just the number and its suffix. And I once again added a symbol, this time a flame, and set some colours so it would stand out from the other plugins. As I record this, I am glancing up at my menu bar and can tell you it is 22 degrees and 67% relative humidity outside. My BZ package file is 1.0 gigabytes in size, my keyboard is at 78%, my trackpad at 44%, and my mouse at 64%. Situational awareness achieved. I have included all of my scripts in the show notes, though the weather script has been cleansed of personally identifying information. I have included notes on how the expunged values should be set if you wish to specify your own weather.com station. The Bluetooth script should work unchanged and will detect whatever magic devices you have. And the Backblaze script should work unless you have renamed your primary disk. But even then, you can easily change that. Well, thanks, Alistair. This couldn't have come at a better time since, of course, 
I've written all the blog posts, so I'm completely out of material. So it sure came at the right time. That's a cool tip. I don't think I could have been able to do what you did, but I sure like the uh, the idea of having the information straight from our own weather station in our menu bar. That's uh, that's really cool. It came out really, really nice. I, he put a screenshot in the uh, show notes, of course, that shows exactly what it looks like. And it's it's really, really pretty. That's definitely very cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is our new weekly segment where you get to tell a story of something fiddly that's driving you nuts. The only rule I have is it's electronic in nature, so everything from your coffee machine to your menu bar apps are fair game. Hi, Allison. This is Sandy Foster, and you asked us what fiddly things are bugging the rest of us. The one thing that bugs me the worst has to do with an automation that I set up. Here's the scenario. I have an iron in my sewing slash quilting room. It's a necessity, and I keep it set up all the time. I also have a Wemo smart outlet, and the iron is plugged into that. My idea was to be able to tell Siri to turn on my iron, and that would trigger the Wemo to turn on. Then it would turn off automatically when I left the geofenced area. It worked, mostly, just fine for a time. The only glitch was that telling my HomePod to turn on the iron resulted in hard rock music playing instead. Okay, maybe I can live with that since my iPhone and Apple Watch behaved just as I'd hoped, and I could skip giving the command to the HomePod. Lately, however, I say, hey, S-Lady, turn on iron, and all three devices do something really weird. No matter which one I use, HomePod, Apple Watch, or iPhone, Siri says... I tried, but the media in your turn-on iron scene is not available. The really strange part of this, though, is that the Wemo does turn on. Everything is fiddly. Oh my gosh, Sandy, this is so funny. I love it. I I understand how the HomePod just decides to play things. Um, My thing lately is it just randomly picks a song when I've just told it to play something from a podcast, but uh, that's even better. I love that it says that media in your turn on iron scene is not available. That's fantastic. All right. Well, our, our next contribution is from Bruce, also known as Noble Songster. Hi, Allison. I'd like to present my addition to what's fiddly. In iOS, when you share an ETA with someone because you're on your way, it's supposed to text them, whether it's on Android or iOS. It is fiddly to say the least, unreliable definitely, and frustrating most of the time. Thanks. Oh, Bruce, I feel your pain. That is the worst. You see how cathartic this is? It was fun for Sandy. It was fun for Bruce. It was fun for the rest of us. Do send in your Everything is Fiddly stories to allison at podfeet.com. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Shots. How are you today, Bart? I am good. I am good. Um, it's finally getting to that stage in the year where there's a, the stretch in the days. So we record mm. at the same time every two weeks. And today we're recording 15 minutes later because you were kind enough to give me some flexibility. And uh, I got to cycle all the time in the relative daylight. I didn't need wow. my uh, <laughs> my big boy helmet. So I 
I have a cycle helmet with like a head mounted light, which is really good for seeing, but is horribly heavy on your head. Oh. And I, ha- I hate wearing it for those, you know, four months in the middle of winter. I didn't wear it today and I didn't miss it. So goodbye. <laughs> well, apart from all the weekdays. But anyway, still, it's not your, it's your really dedication. Nice at, at riding in the rain, in the cold, and in the dark is astonishing. You know, it, the other day I went for a walk and my uh, I encouraged one of my friends to go out and she goes, I can't go out there, it's freezing. It was 63 degrees and sunny. <laughs> oh dear. No, I'm in my house under a blankie. You know? <laughs> and look, the old cliche, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothes. Yeah, I guess so. Right, right. All right, well, Shall we stick in here? Indeedy. So first off, some follow-up and feedback. Only in this case, it's Correction Corner we're visiting. Um, Oh. Sort of. I would say I certainly had the wrong end of the stick. I don't think we explicitly said anything wrong, but I think we left an implication that is wrong. Okay. On what topic? Silver Sparrow. Okay. So I think... We made it sound as if those 30,000 Macs were all M1s and that this malware was targeting just M1s, which isn't correct. Right. What's actually happened is basically the developers used Xcode, clicked the button that said make universal binary, and so Silver Sparrow simply runs native on both. So those 30,000 are a mix That's what happens when you try to mute your phone and you accidentally hit the ping your phone button. That's what you just heard there. Sorry about that, guys. I was going to say, and I just, yeah. had, I just had a fail of do not disturb as well, so people may or may not have heard an email come in very loudly in my headphones. <laughs> I heard it. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think the initial reports did say 30,000 M1 Max, and it was a big deal that it was the M1 Max, but then it actually became kind of a big deal. Hey, look how cool it is that the universal binary, this malware ran on both, Intel and M1. <laughs> yeah, it's That's so easy. Anyone can do it. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. So just in case we left people with the wrong impression, there are 30,000 Macs. Some of them are M1s. Really, the bigger news about this isn't that the developer was able to click the Make Universal Binary button. It's the fact that this appears to be a botnet in waiting, right? Because you have 30,000 machines infected with a tool that does nothing apart from phone home every now and then going, shall I? Only we have no idea what it shall. Right. Now, um, at the end of that, I said something along the lines of, won't Apple stop this? And and you said, yeah, I'm pretty sure they would... Probably by the time we're done talking, it'll be an X-Protect, and indeed it is. So they, they revoked the security actually. certificate of the developer account, and they put it in X-Protect. So even if you do have it, it's not going to be able to do anything. Yes, and I definitely bookmarked a story for that, and it's not in the show notes, so I don't know where that one went to. Obviously, fell through a crack somewhere. So yeah, that I is not that. in the show notes, but that is absolutely true, and I remember bookmarking it, so I don't know how that got missing. Uh, what you also asked me last time was, how can I tell if you've been infected? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, there's now a link in the show notes to basically go look for a few files. And if those files exist, then you had it. And if those files don't exist, you didn't. But if you and don't bother to go find it, it's not going to do anything anyway. And no, 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 because X-Protect stops stuff on first run. So if you're already infected, you're already infected. So the thing runs some code to deploy itself. And what's signed by the developer is the code to deploy itself. 
So by revoking the cert, it stops the code that deploys itself. But so it's okay. So it's but it doesn't stop it from running. It stops the bit of malware that is digitally signed from running, but that is actually an installer of the malware. Once the malware is in, the malware doesn't get stopped. It's, uh, oh, what I, good is that? I, I don't then? actually... You'd need to listen to the Patrick Wardle interview linked in linked on Ken Ray's show because I am not qualified to give you the detailed why. It is a fact. Hmm. Okay, uh, so this is on the checklist by uh, Ken Ray. He interviewed Patrick Wardle on the topic. He did indeed. And to be honest, Ken is getting really, Ken just asked all the right questions in that interview. It was like, I, I was cycling, as I often am, and I would go, I wish he would ask. And like 10 seconds later, Ken says, so Patrick. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> well, good. So okay. yeah, definitely have a listen to that one. Um, as I say, you can have a look for the files and then you will know. Um, but as I said, there's no fresh infections anymore. Um, so that is definitely good that Apple responded. And the check is very easy to do. It's like five yeah. seconds to, ex- to yes. look for it. It's very easy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in, terms of app, app, bleh, in terms of app tracking transparency, I find that so hard to say. I think we just call <laughs> it ATT. Yeah. Um, Facebook is starting to uh, accept the reality of the situation and is proactively making the case to its users that they should opt into being tracked. That seems like a bit of an uphill battle they're fighting, but... Okay, have at it. Uh, Twitter is taking a very different approach. Twitter firstly have come out and basically said, yeah, we're game for this. This is the way of the future. This is what people want. We're on board. And I think in very much related news, they announced that they're getting a paid for feature that allows people to pay extra to super follow their you know, celebrities. And then a super follower can get like extra bonus content that the celebrity wants to share. Like, yeah, it doesn't even have to be tweets. It could be like newsletters and those kind of things. That doesn't have anything to do with app tracking transparency, though. Yes and no. As in, if you enable app traffic, app traffic, ATT, ATT means that the business model of Selling tracking data is going away. So if you want to survive, you need a new business model that doesn't involve spying on people against their will. So I don't right. think it is unrelated that Twitter okay. are going, yeah, ATT is fine. And by the way, here's a new way to give us money. Yeah, it's about time they figured out how to make money. <laughs> yeah, they really were the ultimate example of the digital underpants gnome. Step one, get users. <laughs> step three, profit. And they never did quite do a good job on step two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, LinkedIn then have decided that uh, they're getting on this on the same train too. Uh, they have decided that they are going to proactively stop using the uh, IDFA, the ID for advertisers, in advance of ATT, so that they never have to ask. Oh, nice! So that is that is it working as desired. Uh, we have two deep dives for your pleasure today that are somewhat related to each other and somewhat related to the ATT story. Really, it's all it's all privacy stuff. Uh, the good folks at Firefox have released one of their big uh, quarterly updates, and they have brought with that update a very nice new feature called Total Cookie Protection, which sounds pretty darn good, and I'm happy to say it is pretty darn good. Hmm. So Firefox have made a simple but powerful change to how cookies work in Firefox that has massive implications. Effectively, this puts an end to the use of third-party cookies as trackers for Firefox users. 
It just draws a line under it, ends it. But to explain how they've done it, I'm going to start by describing the world before Total Cookie Protection. This is the okay. world most of us are living in now, unless we're Firefox users who've updated this week. Can can I stop you for a second? So mm-hmm. third-party cookies are already blocked in in Safari, is that right? Ish, kind of, sort of. Ish, okay. And Ish. Chrome, Google has announced that Chrome is going to do it. That is, but this is Safari. This is Firefox. So this is specific to Firefox. What you're talking about here? This is a Firefox feature called Total Cookie Protection, and it is we actually address how this is different to what the other browsers are doing after we describe what Firefox are doing. So the other browsers, actually, I'll look, I'll, 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 I'll reorganize myself and hope that it doesn't mess up my train of thought too badly. Everyone at the moment is working on a block listing model. They're, proact- they're trying to figure out which third-party cookies are bad and stopping them. So that's, that's Apple's intelligent, IT, intelligent tracking prevention. Okay. The intelligence is looking for the bad cookies and stopping the bad cookies. Okay. Firefox have flipped it on its head. Firefox are assuming all, all third-party cookies are malicious, apart oh. from the ones that fit the pattern of not malicious. Okay. All right. So that is a huge change. But there's more going on. That's a much better story. So I, I, I will, now that you know the ending, I'm going to tell you the story anyway, because it's still I really like what Firefox have done. So to keep things clear, it's very important to understand that the website you, as the user of your browser, choose to go to is very important in all of these discussions because that is that is the first party, if you want to think of it that way. So I'm going to call it the primary site. If you click on a link that goes to podfeet.com or if you click on a bookmark that goes to podfeet.com or if you type podfeet.com into your browser, you are going to podfeet.com. You have proactively gone there. So podfeet.com has a special place in that browser tab, right? That is the thing you wanted to do. So that's the so primary that's the site. So pri- the first party. That's the f- arguably the second party, but we'll get to that in a moment. Okay. But that is the primary site, which is why I'm using the word primary site in the first party. Uh, and that gives it a special privilege that makes it different from everything else. Right? So the site you go to, the site in the address bar is different, and that's important. Okay. So when you go to a website, that website is you and that website have a relationship, right? Your browser and the website are the two parties that are having a conversation. So your browser is the first party and the web server hosting that website is the second party. So that's first and second parties taken care of. Now, modern websites contain more than just raw HTML. So your, you know, a website will return back the HTML, the browser will interpret it, and that HTML will embed other resources, probably from other websites. So there could be images, videos, scripts, little embedded subpages called iframes, which you okay. should have ads in them. Sure, right. And your browser will then go to those web servers to fetch those resources. All of those web servers are called third parties. So okay. one website, you could have 10 or 20 third parties. Right, so there, that's how we get to this idea of third parties. So every time your browser talks to any web server, regardless of whether it's a first party or a third party, it doesn't make any difference. Every time your web browser talks to a web server, that web server can include in its answer to the browser a piece of information that it says to the browser, here's a little textual token. I would like you to store that. And the next time you talk to me, give it back to me. And we call those little tokens cookies. That's the web server that does that. 
It says, here's yes. a token, give it back to me out of your cash when you come back? Not out of your cash, out of a special storage place just for cookies, which is, I, I kid you not, the actual technical term is a cookie jar. So the browser has the cookie jar? The browser has the cookie jar. So the website says, here's a cookie, keep it safe, and every time you talk to me in future, please give me back a copy of the token I gave you. Hmm, so the cookie that's a type jar, of cash. Right, Not but the it's, cash? a cash is temp. It, it, right, a cash is a temporary storage that can be deleted without any issue. A cookie jar is different because you're actually storing information until a certain hmm. time has passed. Oh, okay. So it's local storage. If you're going to get pernickety about it. Okay. All right. So your browser stores the cookies in the cookie jar, and that is a technical term instead of me being colloquial, which I love. <laughs> uh, the cookie jar contains at least four <coughs> pieces of information for every cookie. So. Every time a cookie is put in a cookie jar, that action means at least four things get stored. And there's actually a few extra things, but we're not going to go into those. So the domain the cookie came from, or in other words, the other way of saying that is the domain that's set as a cookie. That is very important. The cookie then has a name. The cookie has a value. And the cookie has an expiration date. So it's a little piece of information that has a name, came from a specific domain, and will expire at a specific time. That is, that is what a cookie is. And what does it do? What's its, what's its job? I mean, what, what problem does it solve? Whatever, it, it allows the web server to recognize a web browser when it comes back. Why? For whatever reason the website wishes. So the standard isn't about the why, the standard is about the how. Now, the original use of the why, the, the original use, the reason this was invented was to give us the concept of logging in. Because every HTTP request is 100% independent of every other request. So if a server rec needs to recognize you as being the you from a second ago, it needs to give you a token to re-identify yourself when you come back the second time. Every website request is 100% independent. The protocol has no state. Okay. And so the right. cookie is the mechanism of providing state. So when okay. you log into Google, Google give you a login cookie. And every time you talk to Google, you hand back the login cookie and Google checks its, its, own, its own side of the equation and says, session number 52342, that's still valid. Yes, it is. Okay, I'll keep talking to you. You're still Allison. And then after a certain amount of time, the server goes, I don't care that you think you're logged in. I disagree. And that makes you log in again. But so the primary role here is so that websites have the ability to remember you so that you can log in, so that you can actually have a modern web 2.0 experience. Okay, I got it now. And then after that, the advertising industry went, aha, remember you say, why don't I give you a little token and then ask for it back every time so I can track you across the internet. Mm -hmm. That's... That's not what it was for, but it didn't take long until the penny dropped on that one, unsurprisingly. So in our pre-cookie token protection world, you go to some website. The website hands you a cookie. It's the primary website. That website also loads a resource from an ad tracking company, probably a one pixel by one pixel invisible image. Or it could be an ad, but it's something from a tracking site. That's loaded. in the token? No, okay, no. So you've gone to a web page. Let's say you've gone to some random blog. 
And the first party relationship with that blog hands you back the HTML and that HTML references this one pixel by one pixel image from the tracker. Your browser then goes off to the third party, which is the tracker, and the tracker gets to hand the cookie back because it's also a web server. Okay. So you then save that cookie in your cookie jar and the cookie is associated with the third party's domain. And that cookie contains a unique identifier that the tracker made up for you. I'm sorry then to be browse- dense, but I still don't understand how the pixel got there and where the pixel is if it's okay, not the in the owner, cookie. Okay, you go to a website run by <clears throat> Naughty Person. Naughty Person is paying Ad Tracker 1. Sorry, Naughty Person is being paid by Ad Tracker 1 to do tracking. So that's how yes. Naughty Person is making their money. So, so the, pixel is, has- the pixel is on Bad Person's website. Correct. Not on, bad not person on, is being paid okay. by That's tracker. what I want to know. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Right. All right. So you're on Naughty Person 1's website. They include the tracking pixel. Your browser goes off to that third party. That third party sets a cookie, and that cookie contains a unique ID. Got it. You okay. then go to second Naughty Person's website. Second Naughty Person is also being paid by the tracker, so second person also includes the one pixel tracking token. And your browser is once again told to contact the same third party as before. So it looks in its cookie jar, it finds the cookie from last time, and it hands it back. So now the bad guy knows, ah, I know where that cookie came from. I set that cookie on Naughty Site 1, and now it's come back to be Naughty Site 2. So the same person visits Naughty Site 1 and Naughty Site 2. Okay. They have tracked right. And this keeps happening across the internet. So that's why there are third-party cookies tracking you website to website to website. Right. That's okay. how it's working. Now that work that works because in this pre-Firefox's cleverness world, your browser has one universal cookie jar. There's a jar of cookies which is just used by the browser. One small subheading on that. When you go into private browsing mode, one of the things that happens is that the universal cookie jar is ignored, a fresh cookie jar is created, and when you close private browsing mode, that fresh cookie jar is dropped. They just drop all the cookies and they never get stored. Okay. So private browsing mode is a cookie jar that's temporary and separate. Or that is one of the things in private browsing mode, just as a sidebar. So what Firefox have done is they have stopped the concept of all the cookies going into one universal cookie jar. They still have a universal cookie jar, but that cookie jar is only used for very special cases we'll get to in a moment. So the what they've done instead is every first part, every primary website that you proactively go to gets its own cookie jar. So when you go to Facebook, Firefox makes a Facebook cookie jar. And Facebook will embed 20 million trackers and Facebook will store all of those cookies. Oh, I think I see in where this the is Facebook going. only cookie jar. Mm-hmm. You then go to Reddit because you've typed Reddit into your browser or whatever. You've clicked the link. So your browser's URL bar now says Reddit. So Reddit is now the primary site. And, fi- and Firefox makes a whole new cookie jar. And even if it embeds the same trackers, there are no cookies in there for that tracker yet. So that tracker sees you as a new person, hands you back fresh cookies, and Firefox says, yeah, sure, I'll store those and I'll keep handing them back to you, but only while you're on Reddit.com because there's now a special Reddit cookie jar. And you just go around the web making all these little cookie jars inside Firefox, and every tracker thinks that you're a person who only uses one website. 
because there's only, <laughs> the cookie jar only exists for that one website, and there's a yes. separate cookie jar for every website. So they're tracking you, but they they get they're just tracking you to one spot, and then you basically vaporize. Yeah, you're and a then, new you every time. Everywhere there's nothing you go, in, there's no way for those cookies to know about each other. Yes, because they're in separate jars. So it is exactly as if you are two different people on two different computers. It's no different to the website. So, so are there any the unintended consequences of this that would okay, stop so there would normal be. stuff from there working? There would be, right? So if it were the case that we could just make all third-party cookies go away, then we could have just unticked the box in Safari that says enable third-party cookies and the web would work perfectly. But it doesn't because mm-hmm. there are times where we have an inter-website relationship that is desirable. And the most common example of that is single sign-on. So you would log in to Google or Facebook or office.com or whatever. And then that login would allow you to also access other websites. So this mm-hmm. is very, very, very common in a corporate environment where we log into portal.office.com and that gets us logged into our VLE. It gets us logged into our finance system. It gets us logged into our HR system. So there are lots of different websites sharing cookies from the uh, authorizing server. But if they're all third-party cookies, therefore they break if you have a world without third-party cookies. So what Firefox have done is they have left the universal cookie jar there, but its only job now is authentication cookies. That's all it does. It only stores authentication cookies. And instead of assuming that all third-party cookies are fine and block-listing the bad ones, they have done the opposite. They have allow-listed authentication providers and only the authentication cookies get stored in the universal cookie jar what's an authentication provider Uh, sign in with okay so i I am no longer with the credit union i was with uh for 38 years but i've uh before we left they used a third party for their authentication that would be exactly the situation that would be permitted well but it's, they don't know, Firefox doesn't know anything about it. How would it know this weird company that they contracted with? It's not signing with Apple. It's not signing with Google. It's not signing mm-hmm. with Facebook. It's not signing with Google. It's not OAuth. It's just some company they hired to do it. Well, Bob's it authentication it ha- Okay, so it has to be something like OAuth, right? OAuth is a technology, not a website. So if it's doing cross, if if it's doing authentication provider work, it has to be doing it through one of the one of the standards. So it is handing off using a standard protocol, and Firefox have an algorithm which I think I don't think they've explicitly said it, but I'm I'm almost certain it contains machine learning. But they have written an algorithm to detect the one legitimate use of third party cookies, which is authentication. And if they find an authentication cookie, that gets stored. And that is their magic sauce. They have figured out how to find find the known good cookies and save those. Color me doubtful that Bob's authentication service that my idiot uh, uh, credit union was using was using a standard and would would actually work. But maybe. But it, it, had to, it had to be doing authentication according to a standard or it wouldn't have worked. Like there had to be a, a a relationship between those sites that is an authentication relationship. So, I, I mean, it would be really difficult for them to 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 invent their own technology instead of badly yeah. using an API that someone else wrote. Okay. 
Usually what happens in those cases is they go to the website for some sort of standard someone wrote. They copy and paste example.com. Mm-hmm. They don't do the security stuff that's in giant big writing above the thing saying, this is an example, do not use this on a live site, you need to add security. They forget all of that stuff, they get it working, and then they call it a day, is usually how that goes. <laughs> okay. I'm not saying that's a good thing, right? Because it's still an amateur hour job, but it is standards compliant, and it is the kind of thing Firefox can easily detect. So I would imagine the algorithm has been given plenty of testing before they've gone live with this, because otherwise this would be such an embarrassing own goal. And right. the fact that it's been running for a week or so, and I haven't seen stories of, oh my God, Facebook just, or Firefox just scored such an own goal, I think that means their algorithm is successful. Huh. I tell you what, I think I know somebody who is still with the credit union and, you know, contemplating <laughs> leaving, I'll ask him to try it in Firefox and see if mm. it works. Do, that would be a lovely test. Be if, I, lovely I'm test. telling you, if there's any organization that got it wrong... I mean, I actually spent, <clears throat> excuse me, a fair amount of time talking to the to the CIO of the credit union, trying to get them to change their evil ways. And her answer was, "Can I hire you?" And I was like, it's, "You know, sweetie, you're in big trouble if you think I'm an expert on this topic and you need me." <laughs> yeah, geez, that is. A, on the one hand, at least they're keen for some expertise. On the other hand, they're not looking in the right places. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't think. Uh, Allison's level of talent on this topic is probably worthy. <laughs> yeah, that, that is a little, yes. Anyway, um, and then <laughs> it's like I wouldn't—I wouldn't be a member of a club who would have me. Problem, right? <laughs> Marx, wasn't it? One of the Marx uh, I actually thought that was um, oh the guy that hated children. Can't remember his name. Hitler? I'll come up with it. <laughs> no, no. Anyway, that is that is interesting. I'll, um, I think it's a fantastic approach. Allow listing is so much safer an attitude to take than deny listing, block listing. Assume the world is hostile and carefully let through what you need to let through is a much more secure approach than assume the world is friendly and only let and only block known bad guys. Yeah. <clears throat> well, yeah, trying to identify known bad guys, is the, that's the problem, right? That's the ultimate game of whack-a-mole, and as we have seen for the last <clears throat> decade, the moles are winning. <laughs> right, right. I, th- I think this is a really big deal. I, I am really impressed with the, the approach to the technology, and I, I genuinely think they're onto something here. I, I think this is a big deal. Uh, cool. Just one final point to note. Nothing that ever happens to third-party cookies can ever, ever, ever stop the primary website you go to from tracking you. If you go to Facebook, Facebook know what you do on Facebook. That is true, Okay, will always be true, cannot be anything but true because you're on Facebook. Got you. Right? So just to say that none of this, your browser can never stop the website you visit tracking you because you're visiting it. And the browser is doing what you asked it, which is going to the website. Right. So deep dive number two then is uh, based on a blog post from Google, um, which basically says we are giving up on third party cookies too. I mean, that is the gist of it. It is. So I've snipped out the highlights from the blog post. um, Do you want me to do the the reading? Yes. I know you do the reading. I know you hate it. I hate it. I'm getting better (laughs) at it, but I still don't like it. Yeah, you are. 
All right, it says some highlights that he's picked out here. If digital advertising doesn't evolve to address the growing concerns people have about their privacy and how their personal identity is being used, we risk the future of the free and open web. That's why last year, Chrome announced its intent. Chrome didn't announce an intent. The people who work at Chrome announced its (laughs) intent to remove support for third-party cookies and why we've been working with the broader industry on the privacy sandbox to build innovations that protect anonymity while still delivering results for advertisers and publishers. Even so, we continue to get questions about whether Google will join others in the ad tech industry who plan to replace third-party cookies with alternate user level, or sorry, alternative user level identifiers. Today, we're making explicit that once third-party cookies are phased out, we will not build alternate identifiers to track individuals as they browse across the web, nor will we use them in our products. Our web products will be powered by privacy-preserving APIs, which prevent individual tracking while still delivering results for advertisers and publishers. Can we have a slow clap? (laughs) Right? I I think, right? And I think the fact they are... They're basically saying outright, this is a business decision. That That's a wonderful development. The, the, this large multinational corporation has, you know, put their finger in the wind and gone, ooh, we are swimming upstream. We are, we, we, you know, we need to get in line with what people want here or it's going to cost our business. Therefore, we will respect privacy because that is the business sensible thing to do. That's a very different attitude to the one coming out of Facebook. <laughs> Yeah, it, I sort of, when I saw this, I just tweeted out, did pigs just fly, you know? <laughs> so I would love to be doing a deep dive here where I go into massive technical detail and give it a thumbs up and say that, yep, absolutely, this the, the, they're living up to what they have said, but it's far too early for that. This is very much vague aspirations and they're very much saying what they won't do but there's not a lot of detail on what they will do. So I don't know if this is, you know, genuine pragmatism, if they, I don't know what's driving this, how cynical I should be or shouldn't be, but I'm not sure that really matters. Um, I, I don't actually think the motivation is important. What I think is important is that we watch what they do and see if they live up to this promise. And I don't care why they made the promise. I just want to see whether or not they live up to it. Uh, So really, I I think the the important thing here is that we keep an eye on what they do as third-party cookies go away, and we critically evaluate the actual technology they roll out instead. Uh, So I just couldn't help but thinking of President Reagan, of all people, trust but verify. (laughs) Let's assume this is on the level. And when when we get the technical detail, let's, let's hold them to account. So I am the, cautiously optimistic. The thing I do like about its vagary is its specificity in what will not happen. That is definitely good. Yeah. It's just like nailing our colors to the mast here. Once third party cookies are phased out, we will not build alternative identifiers to track individuals as they browse across the web. Right. Thank right. you. It, it's, so the end game, whatever it is we do invent, it won't it won't be able won't to be that. do that. And that's what we yeah. actually want. And, you know, this makes me think about a lot. Of, I always wonder, well, how much do all these protests and all this noise, how does that ever actually change anything? It's actually changing stuff. I mean, the noise raised to the level that, that the, the uh, government officials are getting involved because their constituents are saying, you need to fix this. And that pressure 
hopefully this can come through through and then we don't have to have a bunch of goofy laws that that try to you know mash today's technology into a law that by the time it passes to, it's tomorrow's technology and never works but this I, it's just if we get to this that's a great thing i think sometimes the threat of regulation is more powerful than regulation <laughs> yeah, well, and allowing them to to come up with the the solutions that yeah. can actually work, you know, right. ver- versus you know we're going to put a law that says you have to put in a back door, but it has to be secure and can never be cracked. Wait, what? Uh, <laughs> we command you by law to do the impossible. Yes, nope. Here, here are two opposing things. Yeah, that's yeah. great. That that's yeah. So uh, uh, you know, as I say, cautiously optimistic, and I will keep an eye. Well, I say I. The industry will keep an eye and we will report on it and keep you all informed. Right, right. So, moving on to action alerts. Uh, Keybase, which is a secure messaging service uh, by, I think it's the people behind Zoom own that now. Uh, they've had a bug that leaked photos, so patchy, patchy, patch, patch is the advice from Naked Security. I think I agree with that. There has been another zero day to Google Chrome. So that's not day, it's not the same story from last time. It is a whole fresh zero day. So patchy, patchy, patch, patch. And Apple have released an update for macOS 11.2.2 that protects some MacBook Pros and some MacBook Airs from damage caused by plugging in non-compliant USB-C hubs and docks that are powered. Very, very vague in the release notes, but it would appear that there are some products out there that don't meet the standards and that when you plug them in, they break these devices and Apple have found a way to detect them and stop them from breaking them. Not entirely clear how that works, but definitely sounds like the kind of update I would like to have on my Mac. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how you would know that you had a non-compliant USB-C hub, but now you don't have to know. Yeah, I, I guess they should have some sort of... I'm sure there's some sort of regulatory marking they should have that we should all know about and we should all be looking for, but I don't know what it is. And I don't, 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 don't think most human beings do. Yeah. Moving on to worthy warnings. Uh, the first story is one that you passed along, Alison. Do you want to take the lead? Yeah, so um, a security researcher named... Where's his name? Where's it? I'm going to come up with Kurtz, I think is his line. Or Kukats, uh found that LastPass is tracking the users. And there seems to be some confusion on whether you can opt out of the data collection. Um, my Uncle Bob on Facebook, I was talking to him about this because he's a... Uh, I never want to pay for anything ever, 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 only use free stuff guy. Um, he was, he said he was able to find the way to opt out, but Tom's guide said, there's no way to opt out of this. And Kukat says there's no way out to opt out. But LastPass says all LastPass users, regardless of browser or device are given the option to opt out of these analytics and their privacy settings. So I don't know why someone says you can and someone, and they say you, or they say you can, but the researcher says you can't. I'm not sure about that. Um, but the other thing that was interesting was uh, there were, I think, seven trackers. This was specifically Android, and they didn't do the research on the iOS version, which I don't understand why they did that. Um, but there was a second one. Um, Dashlane has four trackers on Android, uh, and uh, Keeper and Bitwarden have two. One password had zero. So. Yay! Yeah, that was good. Uh, but it sure be nice to know whether these things are true on iOS. I'm kind of annoyed that they just looked at Android. That's not fair. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> Can't really say anything else. 
Yeah. It, would have, yeah. it definitely would have been nice. Um, a worthy warning that I picked up that caught my eye. Um, Sophos are reminding people that be careful about the photographs you post of your working from home scenario. Because you actually may be exposing yourself to some quite effective targeted phishing attacks if you're not careful. So basically, they've titled the post, I see you, working from work, your home working photos reveal more than you think. This is particularly, they're seeing a lot of activity around some of the common hashtags people are using to share their pictures of home environments, because those hashtags really make it easy for the bad guys to find the photos that are relevant and, and see what they can see. So just something to think about, you know, before you hit post, by all means, share just before you hit post, have a little bit of a look around the frame. Is there a post-it note with your Wi-Fi password stuck there? Oh, there, that kind know, of stuff. Not, not, uh, oh, no, I'm going to target it, you because you have a Danger Mouse poster behind you or something well, like that. that. Right, Danger Mouse wouldn't be the thing, but if there's a logo of the company you work for, that's very dangerous because then mm. you are victim to being, you know, in, in someone pretending to be corporate IT from that corporation. I so see. you definitely need to make yeah. sure there's no corporate logos, nothing like that. You don't want to tweet out the hashtag, say, hi, I'm home working for a major contractor for the American military number one. Like, that would <laughs> not be a good idea. So just beware. It's good advice. Yeah. Okay. Notable news then. Um, I had one of those weeks as a sysadmin where I got to basically go, oh, thank goodness this doesn't affect me. So in the past, just about every corporation on planet Earth would have run a Microsoft Exchange server of their own on-premise. But nowadays, an awful lot of companies are in the cloud, and so all those people who are in the cloud are going, phew! But there's still an awful lot of people running on-premise exchange servers. And Microsoft found that uh, not only were there four nasty vulnerabilities in their product, those nasty vulnerabilities came to light because Microsoft's security team found a new Chinese... um, spying operation, a new branch of the Chinese government, a new team, actively using these four exploits to target large corporations and educational institutions, including, it seems to be a particular focus on vaccine research. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. So they have patched the vulnerabilities. They released an out-of-band patch. They've also given workarounds and mitigations to companies that can't, for whatever reason, apply the patch because they have various processes or whatever, or maybe even regulatory problems. And they have also issued um, a way of detecting whether or not you've been affected. So thankfully, our listeners are unlikely to be running their own server. But this is this is notable news. This is a major attack here. You have state-sponsored actors using zero-day exploits against Microsoft Exchange to target corporations, education institutions working on vaccines. That That's a pretty big story. So Eesh. I thought it was definitely worth mentioning. Yeah. Switching to happier news. I, I <laughs> should have put these slightly different order. Um, I'm going to jump ahead and skip the second story and go on to the third. TikTok have settled the class action lawsuit in the United States for $92 million. The US government said they were doing inappropriate things with children's data that is illegal in the States. TikTok say, we don't accept liability, but we are going to settle the case. So here's 92 million toodlepip. Um, So read into that as you will. Uh, And then the happy story. 
Can I add what? a notable news? You can, absolutely. I'm going to sneak one in. Uh, Apple just announced that you can transfer your photos from iCloud, photo to iCloud Photos to Google Photos. And that's, I don't know whether that counts as, as privacy or security, but it's certainly an opening of things in, in the pigs are now flying category, in my opinion. Yeah, I decided, I didn't think you'd want me to put that in because it wasn't security enough, but mm. I'm glad you brought it up because I do agree that it is a, a very positive development. Um, and it fits into this category of pressuring about uh, monopolies and, and walled gardens and things. And it sort of feels to yeah. me like Apple looked at it and said, well, we could let people do this. And basically the, what it does is it creates a backup. It doesn't get rid of your photos in iCloud Photo Library, but it just says, now I have another copy of them over in Google Photos. And it's just sort of a, you know, bringing down a wall of the garden going, okay, well, you can trot out there on that that one little lane over there. See, we're open. We're not doing anything bad. And it sort of straightens up. It's the kind of thing that companies that are confident in the quality of their own services should be perfectly happy to do. Because you shouldn't be using Apple services because you're trapped. You should be using Apple services because they're good. Mm -hmm. And so if Apple provide you with the means to leave at your will then they're forced to make you want to stay. And I like that incentive. I like Apple's incentive to be to make me happy. I'm paying them. Make me happy. <laughs> right, right, right. It's an, so, interesting, yeah. it's an interesting idea. Yeah. No, and there is talk of these kind of data portability laws becoming mandated. That's the kind of thing the EU is looking at. So it's definitely the way the wind is blowing, and I'm happy to see it. I, I cannot think of a single bad thing about that story. It is a 100% positive development. Great. Yay. Yeah. I also like in the good news category, uh, Brave have purchased a, self, a search engine that they're going to convert into their own fully-fledged search solution. So Brave are a browser focused on privacy built off of Chromium, and they are now going to have their own search engine, which they say will be privacy respecting. So that definitely makes Brave an interesting idea, a private browser with a private search engine. I think there might just be a market for that. So uh, be interesting to see how that turns out. It has to be good, of course, which is where a lot of these search engines fall down. You know, I, I actually, in after one of our recent uh, conversations, and now I'm trying to remember the name of the, the search that I decided to Ecosia? use. Yeah, it's, it's working fine. Oh, I'm good. not having any trouble with it. It's working great. I've had it on there for like a month now. And every once in a while I go, wait, where's the button that, oh, this isn't Google. You know, like I, I have okay. forgotten that it's that it's not Google, and that that's probably the, one of the best um, uh, one of the best ads for it, right? And Ecosia, it, yeah, that's the one that does some environmental stuff. Yeah, they're, they're basically they have they respect your privacy and they power all their data centers renewably, so they don't destroy the planet or your privacy. Yeah, that's pretty good. Search the web to plant trees. 121 one million trees have been planted by Ecosia users by using it. Pretty good. There you go. You know, feel good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do I remember correctly that you tried DuckDuckGo and weren't happy? <laughs> yeah, DuckDuckGo left in like three days. Couldn't couldn't okay, find so anything ever. DuckDuckGo did not make you happy, and this this you've forgotten about that you even turned it on. That's a very positive sign. Yeah, yeah. I think it's working pretty well. Excellent. I'm really happy to hear that. Uh, in terms of top tips, one that crossed my eye: uh, Naked Security basically have. Some security advice for people who insist on using TikTok. So insist. You say that with a sneer. Enjoy well, and love TikTok. How about that phrase? 
sure, if you use TikTok, then you should Thank have a read you. of this. And if you don't, don't bother. So I, I fall into the don't bother category. But I'm TikTok sure is fun. my happy place. It is so okay, freaking good. funny and lovely and loving and wonderful. And I laugh and it's, it's where I go when I need some peace and happiness. In that case, have fun. <laughs> okay. And I believe their algorithm is very clever as well. I think I think they've actually mastered <clears throat> this whole AI algorithm thing quite... I hear a lot of good things. Yeah, they are good at surfacing the stuff that I like because I've just been, you know, I put little hearts on things that make me laugh or smile yeah. or feel good. And so I get things that make me laugh and smile and feel good. The, the problem with their algorithm is they tend to show me the same stuff. Like I'll, oh. I'll see something like, I've seen this video three times already. Why are you showing me this again? So they got some work to do. Okay. Maybe I've hit the end of TikTok's happy, joyful part. <laughs> you finished the internet. Through. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, in the excellent explainers category, I just popped in a story. I didn't really know what to do with it, but it was a whole big faux scandal for most of the week that uh, Dustin Curtis was locked out of his Apple ID and it was monstrous and it was something to do with Apple Card. And the whole time I thought, this doesn't smell right. And I didn't collect the stories to put in the show notes, but then Tidbits did a deep dive and basically went, here's what happened. Apple could learn some things to make their customer support better, but there's no scandal here. So okay. if you'd like all the details, link in show notes. So I thought, thank, thank goodness Tidbits did that. Saved me a lot of hassle. <laughs> Interesting insights then. Um, I have three in this section. Um, I did a lot of interesting side reading. So... Wired have a very interesting report uh, highlighting the fact that um, a lot of mobile apps these days they don't they don't run their own servers anymore because that's a lot of effort and you know a, a lot of apps have a cloud backend so they're using cloud services and those cloud services can be very secure like the APIs on AWS and Azure and Google's version of those things those APIs allow for completely secure operation. But you have to actually toggle the switches and set the knobs and actually configure the darn thing. And Mm. it turns out that an awful lot of app developers get it working and then stop. And they don't get around to getting it secure. So some security researchers looked at the backends of a whole bunch of popular apps. And basically what they found was that loads and loads and loads of them aren't secured because they have misconfigured or not configured. And that's iOS and Android apps, right? It's iOS and Android apps because ultimately the thing <clears> that those apps will have in common is that they share the same backend, right? So if you have an app that runs on both, it's going to be talking back to the same backend. And it's so you remember backends. when we started up Security Light, before we started calling it Security Bits, the rule was don't tell us about stuff that just makes us fearful and we can't do anything about? <laughs> we can't do anything right, about but- this. Right, that's why it's an interesting insight and not one of the main things, right? This is some suggested reading. It's a, it's a good article just that mean. explains what's going on. So. It's just mean. Okay. Because I can't fix it. All I have to do is sit in terror that my data is being leaked. Um, <laughs> or you could look at it the other way and that you have security research pointing at... I mean, this is stuff security researchers can detect because they can see those backends and they can report it to the developers. And so the fact that this is getting the attention of the security community means it will get fixed. Okay, good. I feel better now. <laughs> um, and the, the next one, there is a takeaway. Um, so Brian Krebs has a very good explanation. So you know the way I'm always saying follow the money, right? Everything, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, if you want to understand what's going on in terms of malicious software, 
follow the money. Because the bad guys aren't doing it for the crack, they're doing it to get rich. And so if there's a business model, then that's what's going to happen. And Brian Krebs explains a new business model that I hadn't come across before. It's a mix of some grey hat companies and outright cyber criminals. What they are doing is they are looking for developers of browser extensions that have at least 50,000 users, seems to be the cutoff they're using. And they're offering them money to either, please insert this little bit of code we'll give you and we'll pay you per thousand users. Or they're just buying the plugin outright, continuing to publish it, but adding in a few little additions of their own. Oh, oh, that's nasty. That is very nasty. So this is now a new business model that's being used basically to steal users through browser extensions and what they have found basically is that the developer of browser extensions when the extension becomes popular they don't get any thanks from the community they don't get any financial support from the community but lots of people shout at them a lot and it makes them very cranky so if someone comes along and offers them some money they tend to be very receptive so is this another one i can't do anything about Yes, it is. What you can do about it is be do not install plugins with gay abandon. Uh, only install plugins recommended by someone you trust. So install the plugins you need and no more than the plugins you need. But that, that won't, no, that's going to help me. I buy Bart's plugin, but then Bart gets offered a million dollars for that plugin, and now it's owned by somebody else, and I don't know that, and it's and it's a backdoor. It can happen. Um, but usually when that happens to a major plugin, that will make the news, and then you'll hear about it here. Okay. Arguably so I have to somehow know what the major ones are in order to know which what's safe, right? Which is why the takeaway I get from this is install as few plugins as you need and no more, right? It's It's not safe to walk outside. You could get hit by a car, but we all do it. But we don't go running and we don't go playing in traffic. So install the plugins you need, but don't go installing them willy-nilly at the drop of a hat, install 20 of them. I mean, you know, maybe try them out, but clean up after yourself from time to time. Minimize your exposure is the lesson I take away from this. Don't don't spend your life not going outdoors because that's just the digital equivalent of never setting foot on the street. But don't install everything under the sun. I Hmm. like plugins. Okay, well then by all means do, but just don't, inst- don't install, don't leave it installed if you're not using it, right? You install it, you experiment with it, it doesn't do what you want, uninstall it. Does that make Fine. sense? Yeah. Okay. Mean people suck. <laughs> yes. Yes, 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 yes. This is Actually, I do recommend nice doing, a, uh, doing a clean install once in a while, because all of a sudden you realize which extensions you actually use. That is a, that is a very good tip. Uh, I think Firefox actually offers you from time to time. It's like, you haven't actually used some of these in a while. Do you mind if I just toss them out? Interesting. Nice okay, I'm using there. three. That's that's pretty darn good. One that's password, Dark Reader, and Grammarly for Safari. And I usually don't use Dark Reader. I could probably turn that off most of the time. That turns on dark mode, is it? Uh, it'll actually take web pages that are white and make them dark whether the developer wanted them or not. And it's, it was part of a tiny tip I did that you can change the way your face looks in video by ensuring oh. that the, uh, that the it, dark mode is on on the, on the window. Yeah, you're starting to get that ghosted out look. Just looking at my own webcam image, like I am currently ghosted out completely by right. the entire white background that is on my show notes. Right. So can, you can see my face right now, right? 
I am uh, Bart is the only one who'll get this, but I'm going to turn on Dark Reader, and uh, it's going to fail and not function properly. So that was a good experiment. Uh Nobody could see it, and it didn't work. I don't know. Oh, maybe it's because I'm not on a web page here. I'll go to podfeet.com and do it again. So my my web page has got a, a fair amount of white on it. Yeah. And I'm going to go into here and I'm going to turn it on. And now that's dark. Oh, wow. Okay. Big that difference is... on my face, right? Heckin' yeah. <laughs> that, that was, I was expecting to see it, but that was dramatic. Yeah. Me so the, you, especially because that light coming off the monitor is a nice bluish tinge that makes you look really anemic. So when it, it, I can put my whole computer in dark mode, but if I've got a big white thing, so I, I, I use it a lot for DTNS. Because I like to that's... look fancy for them. Yeah. So there you go. That plugin works and you need it. So keep it there. Okay. I'm all right then. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then the last one is one of these. I just like to know how things work. I like to know how the alarm clock comes apart. And uh, the guys over at Naked Security have done a very interesting deep dive into a mechanism that's being used to deploy malware. So it, they're not actually describing the malware. They're describing the techniques and strategies used to convince you to double-click on the malware and infect yourself. And oh, it's interesting. it's always fascinating to see how they're doing that. And so if you want to know more, read into the show notes. Again, it, you know, the aim isn't to frighten you here. The aim is just to, to, to know what the bad guys are up to. Because, again, it's, they're trying to trick you. And if you know what those evil suds are thinking, then you're a way harder person to trick. <laughs> I like it. I like it. So we definitely need some palate cleansing here. So um, all we have three palate cleansers, and really they're all very, very, very related to the palate cleanser we did last time, which was all about the uh, Mars rover Perseverance. Um, and you didn't know what I was going to pick, and I didn't know what you were going to pick, but we basically ended up with three palate cleansers that are all Mars related. So um, <laughs> and I've I've added a fourth that is not. So, but you oh, don't okay. know what it is yet. Oh, I look forward to that. <laughs> so the first one I picked uh, immediately caught my eye because we talked about how cool the seven minutes of terror were. Uh, and at the time we recorded last time, that had happened. It was a success. We knew it had worked. And we'd heard the radio transmissions and we'd seen the live footage from the control room and everyone jumping for joy. And it was really cool. Mm-hmm. But the rover had filmed itself on the way down, but it took a while to transmit that back to Earth because the bandwidth is very low on the Mars internet connection. That's now arrived back. So you can actually see the sky crane from the point of view of the bit lowering the rover down. So you can watch the rover being dropped down. You can see the Martian dust being blown up by the retro rockets. It it is. Oh, it is. So it's cool. What I loved about this was, was you definitely do get all of that view like Bart described, and that's great. But what you also have is they've got, got waypoints along the video, a little graphic underneath showing you what the status of the, of the rover is. So you can see it hanging from the, uh, the parachute and you can see the, the heat shield coming off or whatever that is that fell off the bottom. And then you see, then you see the rover detaching from, you know, you know exactly what's happening above you in the direction you can't see. Yeah, it's really cool. And the other thing is you can watch the Martian landscape sort of start off as, you know, there's no detail here. And then as you come closer, like individual sand dunes begin to come out and then the rocks begin to show. It, it's it, it's amazing to see an automatic rover landing itself on another planet in such detail. I oh, I just love that video. It's just yeah. fascinating me knowing. Yeah, I love the... Um I love the excitement that everybody seems to be having about space right now. It's it's really, really fun. 
Yes, yeah, STEM is cool. <laughs> people have realized it, and that's good. Well, I think I, I sent you an XKCD comic uh, that uh, is all about it, and it, I'm not going to completely destroy it by describing it, which is all you can do when you try to read an XKCD out loud. But it's a uh, yeah. it's a graph of the where the vertical axis is capabilities and the horizontal axis is cuteness, and he has plotted the Mars rovers on those two scales. <laughs> but of course, what else would you graph? I love the way I love the I love the end of the box thinking. Right, um, and right. the sec the second one I have is so the parachute they used to lower you know for part of the descent when you see the photographs of it it's not uniform it's not symmetrical it has red and white bits and they seem to be in a random arrangement and nasa didn't say anything about it they just sort of left it to the internet to figure out and the internet were like hang on a second that's not random that is a binary encoding of a message indeed it was they wrote a message into the parachute with the shapes and colors. Uh, and what was, it, what was it it said again? Uh, oh, sugar. It's, uh, it's uh, dream, or Dare D- Mighty Things. There it is. I just got to it on my screen. Yeah, so the parachute said Dare Mighty Things. And that's actually a quote from, oh, shoot, I can't find, I don't remember who the quote was. Yeah, uh, uh, I don't know if it's in this article. Let's see. Nope. It's not in this article, but it's a it's a famous quote. I will find that. Well, uh, the other thing Thanks. I liked about the, uh, in this article, they show a close-up of the, um, the family tree on the, uh, on the, the rover. And it's, it's got a, a, like, you know how you see on the back of cars, you'll see like a, a mom and a dad and three little kids and a dog. It's like that, yeah. but it's each of the rovers. Oh, it's absolutely adorable. I have asked for Christmas for a t-shirt that has that on it. And I think Steve was able to find it. So, uh, Ooh. uh, this is a long time away though. What's that? Christmas is a long Sorry, time my away. birthday. I, I, ah, I incorrectly okay, said better. my birthday is coming up, so that'll that'll do it. Um, actually, I guess "Dear Mighty Things" is a quote from NASA. Wow, that seems or, or from JPL. Dag damn it! I'm doing a terrible job of this. I should have I should have known this, but uh, yeah, now I've now I've botched it. Somebody's yelling. Oh, Theodore Roosevelt! There it is. An 1899 speech. He said, far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. Man, presidents used to be a lot more eloquent. <laughs> okay, That's so I snuck, in an, I snuck in another one. There okay, is a got? video. There's a guy named Luke Miani, and he's an he's an Apple guy. He's a a, a YouTube influencer. I hate that phrase. And uh, uh, he has created what he calls the first M1 Mac Mini. I'm sorry, first M1 iMac Mini. So he took in this video, he takes a dead 2010 Mac uh, iMac, he completely right. guts it, and he puts the guts of an M1 Mac Mini inside of the iMac and the the thing is i mean it's a ridiculous thing to do there's a whole the the you got to stay till the end where he talks about the slight downsides because it's really a disaster but he succeeds at his goal in doing this and it's really funny the guy is hysterical i'm gonna start watching everything he does he's absolutely hysterical 
So uh, it's funny and it's clever, but he does show one really interesting thing. There's a way to take an iMac and for 80 bucks, make it an HDMI monitor. That's interesting. It's very very interesting interesting. because a lot of people have old iMacs where they're like, well, what am I supposed to do with this thing? Here's this beautiful 27 inch display and I can't do anything with it because it doesn't do target disc mode. It involves completely gutting it. But then there's this little tiny circuit board you buy for 80 bucks online and then it becomes an HDMI monitor. That is a that that in its own is is such a valuable tip. Yeah, so he does that part, but then he goes, "But that wasn't fun enough. Let's just keep going." It's, it he is sounds great. like our people. Oh, it is so fun. funny. It's wonderful. His name's Luke Miani, and I put the uh, the link to his first M1 iMac mini video. Excellent. I'm going to enjoy that. All right. Okay, well, well I told you I, I had a hard stop, and I managed to make us talk all the way until it. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say we have 30 seconds left, which is just enough time for me to say until next time, stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. I had a lot of fun here. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions, and your everything is fiddly comments. And you can do that by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to become a patron like all the cool kids? Go to podfeet.com slash Patreon. You want to do a one-time donation? That's podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join in the conversation? Having a lot of fun over in Slack at podfeet.com slash Slack. And we're having fun over in Facebook at podfeet.com slash Facebook. Wherever you want to play, we're there. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live like Forbes did this week on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.